1: Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's, where the crew is on your team. Grab your shopping cart, make a quick snap, and move out of the pocket. Run an option to the demo station. Make an end around to the snacks, then find an eligible receiver to take you to the end zone. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to The Audible, I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman, but joined for the first time this year in person here at the LA Hotel, the official media uh, hotel for the Rose Bowl and Bruce, we have a third podcast co-host today.
2: We do, we have broken the bank on our budget to fly uh, USA Today writer, Lindsey Schnell, out to
1: LA. And her podcast equipment out to LA. Guys, if this podcast sounds a lot better than our usual one, we usually just record on Skype and press record. Lindsay brought like this whole rig. I don't even, I don't understand how any of it works, but apparently this is how the actual pros record podcasts. So Bruce, myself and Lindsay, you know, we're here to cover the Rose Bowl and we're going to talk about the playoff games and some other bowl games. But first, speaking of the Rose Bowl, Bruce... Had a conversation earlier with former Georgia coach, former TV analyst Jim Donnan, to get his take on the Georgia Oklahoma matchup. So let's roll that right now.
2: And now we're joined by our guest. It is Hall of Fame coach Jim Donnan, who has a uh, interesting perspective on this Rose Bowl matchup because he was a former offensive coordinator for the Sooners, and he was a head coach at the University of Georgia. Well, one of his proteges is Kirby Smart, the head coach now. Coach, thanks for joining us.
3: Sure, glad to be with you, Bruce. Uh, like old times back there at ESPN, being on with you, buddy.
2: It is just a little different technology, but um, yeah, for sure. L- let me ask you. To start with with Kirby. Uh, back when when did you first when did you first meet him and get to know him?
3: Well, you know, when I got the job here, he was already on the, as a uh, player here. He was a rising sophomore and you know he showed a lot of leadership right off the bat when i got here because uh, they had a couple meetings and he, he really stood up for the fact that told everybody hey there's nothing you can do about it we got a new coach let's back him and he was very good about that and he really did a good job of uh developing as a player and uh, and played exceptionally well every year that i had him and uh, and also I hired him for his first college job. He went and played for the Colts for a little while, and then we didn't really have anything available, but we created a position for him, and he came in here, and uh, the rest is history.
2: What was he like back then? Could you tell All right, this guy someday is going to be a head coach?
3: Well, I don't know if I'm Carnac or Magnificent or not, but I can tell you this. It was pretty easy to see that with his background, his dad being a high school coach in the state of Georgia, and is uh just really thirst for knowledge the way he studied tape and film and the way you know showed the leadership on the field it's a pretty good idea that he was going to be a coach but you never know to what level anybody's going to be at that stage but uh, as you followed his career and the way he developed there wasn't any question about it as he continued to do very well at Alabama that he was going to be a head coach and he's really come in here and Made a quantum leap from year one to year two, which any coach needs to be able to do is recognize what you've done good and what you need to work on. And boy, he just did a terrific job of improving
2: this program in a lot of areas. Where's the biggest area you think he's grown as a coach, you know, either from coming out of the Sabin program or even before that?
3: You know, I think just the fact that he's a, he has a defensive background, and, and as a defensive coach, a lot of times you work. You know, you worry about why plays won't work instead of why they work, and I think uh, he really adjusted his offensive philosophy a little bit from between last year and this year. And the fact that you know he still lets Coach Cheney call the plays for sure, but I just think we're a little bit uh, better physically, uh, our teams better trained because they had a year under his his tutelage, and they just—I would just say the improvement offensively has been the biggest thing. The fact that. That George is able to, you know, connect so many different ways in the red zone, and last year they couldn't. So that's the difference between having the record that they got because they really had a shot at a big year last year.
2: From your perspective, were you did you see this coming with this team this year? I mean, they, you know, they quarterback they had a talented kid, but he certainly wasn't proven. And then he gets he gets hurt, and then you have a new fresh a freshman comes in, and obviously they got speed and talent on defense, but. I mean, did you see this coming at all?
3: You know, one of the things you got an advantage here being living in the town, you get to see a team practice once in a while. I don't go over there that much, but I saw a tremendous uh, improvement between last spring and this spring and just the, the way the players had, uh, you know, developed under the off-season program, the, the way that they uh, did everything. They just had a year under Kirby's. Uh, ability to, to tell him the way he wanted it, and that's pretty true with any coach taking over, Bruce, but but I think the biggest thing started when those seniors that had a chance to go out and go to the NFL, like Chubb and Michelle and, you know, Sanders and, and some of those guys came back. That really showed the, the underclassmen that they were behind uh, Kirby and what he was doing, but uh, there's no question that he, he re- you know, inherited some pretty good players, no, but uh, at the same time, I just think that, uh, it, it, and you add to the fact that the East is just uh, not not anything like we thought it was going to be, and it's probably even worse than we thought it would be. When you look look at the fact that both Tennessee and Florida got new coaches, so he took advantage of that and he gave him credit. Though you got to do it. I mean, uh, who would ever thought Missouri would win in two years like they did? But we weren't able to win here in Georgia those two years. So, so Kirby took over. And, and did a really good job. Rick left him some good players, but he's really improved
2: the program. How do you see this going on? I mean, obviously Baker Mayfield wins the Heisman, just a really explosive offense. you got Roquan Smith leading the defense, probably the best linebacker in the country. You know, But they haven't seen, aside from Drew Locke, it's not like Georgia's faced many good quarterbacks. What are you expecting to see when they take the field in Pasadena?
3: Well, you hit the nail on the head right there. The ball in the air, we just haven't seen it that much this year, uh, and particularly in a regular down situation, because most of the teams have been behind Georgia all the time, so they're always, uh, you know, playing nickel defense or playing, uh, you know, a lot of different coverages. So, you you know, one of the things you really have to worry about with with their offense is they do such a great job of the run-pass options and putting so much pressure on your middle linebacker with that tight end down the middle. So I think the ability to play the ball in the air is going to be supreme for Georgia. They got to do a good job of that. And then as everybody knows, Georgia's offense is pretty good. And, you know, keeping Baker off the field would be a big part too. you know, really doing a good job of uh, maintaining ball possession. I think there's going to be a real challenge for OU to tackle these guys in space and, and, you know, for the most part, nobody's been able to do it all year.
2: Since you brought up Karnak earlier, let me ask you this. Give me a prediction. The quarterback at the University of Georgia next November is who?
3: Boy, I tell you, that's a, I could give you a multiple choice on that. It could be any one of the three. First of all, Eason, if he comes back, he won the job over from when he was healthy. Fromm's going to have a tremendous year, no question in his background. And then you got Justin Fields coming in, who, who is really literally one of the top players ever come out of Georgia, along with the Lawrence kid that's going to Clemson. So I, I really think it's going to be a heck of a battle. And, uh, and the way Kirby does, which I really like and the players like, you know, they have open competition all the time. They've had some guys getting beaten out during the season this year, at different positions. So, uh, we could see a really uh, a real Donny Brook there quarterback, and I'm, I'm, I really can't really predict that. But I do know this: all three of them are quality players.
2: It seems like you know you used to hear a lot about the Big Three producing talent: Texas, Oklahoma, or Texas, California, and Florida. But it really seems like it's become the Big Four in the last couple of years with Georgia, and especially the quarterbacks that are coming out of there. Is there is there an answer beyond just really good high school coaching of why? We are seeing so much talent come out of that state of late.
3: Well, it's a very heavily populated state and with the most of it there in Atlanta. And you're seeing a lot of these quarterback gurus come in and train these kids year-round. And you're seeing so many of these high schools doing a great job like they do in these other states of running the spread and teaching these guys how to throw and catch. And as you mentioned, with Emory Jones and Lawrence and, uh, and of course, Fields, I mean, how do you get – three quarterbacks like that in one state one year, but but I think the, the, the thing that Kirby's been able to do is reestablish the fact that this is the state university, and most of these kids are looking for a reason to come here, but you got to win on a level that they, you know, because they got so many chances to go other places, so he, uh, by winning so big this year, he just having a monster recruiting year, too, because all these guys are jumping on the bandwagon, but there's no question that uh, Georgia, the state of Georgia, really produces. And the other thing it produces is just some really big time defensive and offensive linemen. I mean, you're going to see two of the, the guys starting for the other two teams uh, that are playing out, uh, you know, from the standpoint of Orlando Browns from, from Georgia starting a left tackle for Clemson. I mean, for OU and then for Clemson, Mitch Hyatt is mm-hmm. from uh, the state of Georgia, too. So it's amazing how many good players are out there.
2: I mentioned you were offense coordinator at OU. Back in the day, you know we're seeing Jake Fromm as a chance as a true freshman to lead his team to a national title. You had some familiarity with with the one guy who had really had done it. I guess it's thirty plus years ago. Tell me about that situation and what the biggest challenge that a coaching staff has when you have such a young guy as as the focal point of your team.
3: Well, eerily similar in the fact that Jamal Holloway took over for a guy that was a really big-time quarterback and Troy Aitman, hurt his leg against Miami, and uh, really we had to make a move there during the season and really cut back a little bit on what we were doing but and play around our defense led by Bosworth and could see us and a lot of those good players, just like Georgia's led by Roquan Smith and some of these great D linemen here. So it's very similar there, but I think Fromm was ready to go from day one. He started out there the first game, and had to do it when Jamel came in. It was the fifth game. But the one thing about Jamel that I thought was just incredible was the fact that being from Los Angeles, he was a little bit more mature maybe than some kids coming in because he really, you know, had to do a lot, nothing against Los Angeles. But he was very, uh, you know, he was very street savvy, knew what he was doing. And he came in there and our kids really responded to him incredibly well. And, uh, you know, we didn't lose the game for a long time there, except that Miami game. And uh, and we won 28 straight Big Eight games in a row. So he was outstanding and uh, just a, one of the best quarterbacks that I've ever been around. But And I had the same thing happen at Marshall. Uh, freshman quarterback Chad Pennington had to take over right in the middle of the year when we lost the guy. And he got us to the championship game, and we, we ended up losing that one. But you know, I just believe this, and you and I have talked a lot about it, and you wrote a great book on uh, quarterback play. I think talent is going to always supersede experience here. I just think if you got the ability, it doesn't matter what class you're in. If you believe in yourself and you got a good supporting cast, these guys can rally around you.
2: The one thing, and we're talking about talent, and I know the quarterback, you have Josh Rose, and A lot of people think he may be the first pick in the draft. You have kind of an interesting perspective on him in this uh, outside of, you know, you, you played college tennis, right, at NC State in addition to being a quarterback. And I don't, you know, I forgot about this for a while, but uh, Drew Brees was a really good youth tennis player and obviously was a great quarterback. Rosen had high-level tennis training, and it's translated, and he's talked about, you know, and it, the coaches have talked about how that repetition and development really has aided him as a quarterback did you see that similar, I mean, having that kind of experience and what the crossover is, having having played it at a high level and being a real com- competitive tennis player in the position it is?
3: Yeah, I think certainly you can't put me in the same boat as those two guys. Uh, but I, I, I think from the standpoint of what I always felt about, uh, tennis as an individual sport in a lot of ways. You're out there by yourself, and you're having to make uh, – you know, win the points or or make the other guy lose a point, but you had to develop a lot of ability and belief in yourself, which you need a quarterback because you got to move your feet around, and you got to do a lot of things. But being on your own like that sometimes helps you when you get in a in a tough battle, and and also the hand eye coordination and the foot movement and everything. And uh, I believe that that really helped me for sure because uh, I always had a lot of confidence in myself and. And sometimes that carries over to your your teammates, and sometimes it doesn't. But I wouldn't say that uh, there's that many guys that, that go on and play, you know, college football because the, the really elite tennis players just keep on going and play college tennis or get on the circuit or something. But uh, certainly, you can see uh, two great quarterbacks there in Breeze. We had Breeze in the uh, game when we played, and it's kind of ironic. Jim Chaney is the offensive coordinator here. And uh, Breeze was a player at Purdue when we played him in the Outback Bowl. And I always kid about the, you know, we were behind 25 to three. And I told our players what happened. The game started at 11, and we didn't think it started to one
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> because
3: we were behind so bad. And I always kid Chaney when I see him over there. said, you guys took the, you know, pedal off there, and we were able to come back and beat him. But Breeze was a heck of a college quarterback and now pro. And I think Rowan's going to be the same.
2: Just the last thing before we let you go, you worked for Barry Switzer. I'm sure you got a million stories. What's the best Barry Switzer story you can tell us for air?
3: Well, there's a lot of them out there, but I guarantee you one of them that always just strikes me was the fact in '86 we were playing Oklahoma State, and for some reason. Of course, you know how all coaches are about your state rival. Switzer was always bagging on Oklahoma State. He would tell recruits like, hey, you could go to the moon and come back 10 years later, still going to be the same. OU dominate, and all that. And the week of the game, he was always talking down a little bit to OSU and the press and all and so Gary Gibbs, our defensive coordinator, says, look, Coach, hey, before you start getting on OSU too much this week, you need to go in there and watch the film. I said, I got some unbelievable players on defense because he really focused on their offense a little more. So uh, he, he actually goes back there and watches a couple of, you know, of, at that time it was just actual film. And, of course, everybody knows they had Thurman Thomas. I mean, what a player he was and he comes in there into the meeting room he says, we'll be alright as long as uh, as uh, they don't put Barry Sanders in there. <laughs> when what what all of us said, what are you talking about? He said, well, they got a freshman over there that's returning kicks and if, if they put him in for Thurman, he'll never get back in the lineup. <laughs> so, it was pretty funny for us. To, that's the first time I ever heard of Barry Sanders. Of course, we'd heard about him being recruited, but Switzer kind of projected that right off the bat that uh, even though Thurman was great, he said, you know we didn't need to get him hurt we didn't need Barry coming in there, and then the, in eighty seven he got like two hundred and seventy yards rushing against us up there in that game we finally beat him
2: Wow, well, I know you'll be watching this this weekend it's gonna be an interesting matchup obviously the a true real physical SEC team against Baker mayfield we think it's going to be a it should be a shootout but uh Jim thanks for joining us on the audible
3: hey, I'm always glad to be on with you Bruce I'm sorry I didn't get to talk to too about it, but there's no question about it. You two guys really do a lot for college football. I hope you keep us show for time.
2: Alright, thanks coach. That was Hall of Fame coach Jim Donnan. Again, former OU offensive coordinator and Georgia head coach. Thanks coach. Thank you. Alright, so we appreciate Coach Donnan and now let's get to our guest, our other guest, the one who's in person. Pressure's on, Lindsay.
4: Bruce, I wanted to come on the podcast for you Almost a year Just so I can tell the story Because so many coaches listen to this podcast I'm
2: afraid to know what the story is About about when
4: I hung out at your house and was playing catch with Ben, your son
2: Oh, okay I don't know if this makes me sound like a great parent, by the way But tell your story
4: I don't know if it makes (laughs) you sound like a great parent either But it does make you sound like someone who appreciates quarterbacks So I'm at Bruce Felt Every time I'm in LA, I always call Bruce and ask if I can come over and see His wife, Christy And their adorable twin children Ben and Riley And I was there in May, right? I think it was May. Whenever the NFL draft was almost here in the spring, hanging out at the Feldman's house. And I'm playing catch with Ben, who is three years old. Important note that Ben is only three. We're playing catch with one of his stuffed animals. And I toss it to him and he drops it because he's three. And Bruce pops his head in and says, wait a minute, Ben, it hit you in the hands. You have to catch it. And I said, Bruce, oh, my God, that's really harsh. And he said, I'm sick of quarterbacks being blamed every time there's an incomplete know, quite pass. Like that, but, he- <laughs> but the best part is he proceeds to tell me that you guys were watching an NFL playoff game, right? We
2: are, yeah. And so this receiver was trying to get his feet in and catch the ball. Receiver's trying to get his feet in, catch the ball, and drops it. And I said, Ben, whose fault is it? He goes, It's Ben's fault.
1: <laughs> oh, gosh. I said, no He's Ben. He's giving his son a complex already. <laughs> not time every, when
2: everybody drops a pass, it's not going to be your fault. It's their fault if it hits their hands. So.
4: At which point I asked Bruce if he wanted to go visit a child psychologist.
1: <laughs> so it's a family event. My daughter and my wife and daughter are here as well. Lindsay and Bruce got to have lunch with them and she's almost two. She was watching one of the bowl games with me the other day, and all she really knows at this point is she knows what football is, and she knows what running is. So a guy took off, and she's like, running, football, running. So I figured that would right, be a so sentence. so she's ready soon. for the
4: SEC. <laughs> yeah.
1: she, well, was, she identified the speed right off the bat. It's interesting to
2: see, to watch sporting events through your little kid's eyes. So our... Our kids have, have spent time at the Fox office, so they see Wanstead on Sunday mornings, oh, nice. and there's Coach. And they don't see Matt Leinert there, so they don't see Matt. But then they see next to Wanstead is that guy they saw at their friend's Thanksgiving house, and that was Colin Coward. But they just know him as that guy. They don't know his name. <laughs> um, so there was a we flipped by, and I'm trying to remember. It was a basketball game like a couple of weeks ago, and it's a Brando game. And so Tim is doing his open or whatever. I forgot who his his partner might have been. I think Stephen Bardo. And I was like, what are the odds that one of these kids is just going to go, hey, there's daddy's friend who talks too much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't get that but haven't you told me that their favorite people in the world are basically like, they think like Matt, Coach, and Robert. All hang out together. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I
4: was watching a game one time at my best friend's house, and her little boy who was three at the time watched it a little bit, and this is not a sports family, and he goes, why do they fall down so much in regards to football players tackling each it's a great other? <laughs> question. It's a
1: great question. So, guys, as we were reporting this on Friday, the playoff games are on Monday. We've had a lot of bowl action leading up to it, and we're not going to go through all of it. But, Lindsay, I have a question. Did you watch the Foster Farms Bowl the other day?
4: I watched part of it. A group of us were in the media room because I texted Bruce during the game and said, hey the- – watching this game on mute but when you came on tv we turned the sound up <laughs> and that was it it was only in the first so, half don't
1: take it personally <laughs> so i went because it's 10 minutes from my house bruce was the sideline reporter really cool to see him in action it was actually a really exciting game it went right down to the wire purdue with the big win um which by the way when everybody says all these bowl games are so meaningless they're so pointless yeah watch the way these teams celebrate after they win one of these games especially a team like that that has struggled recently you would think they'd won um, the national championship. But anyway, they win the game. Purdue wins the game, and it's time for the trophy presentation. And I know you've done it before, but I will always just think it is super cool that you get to hand out the trophy. Well, I, when I say I've done it before, I've
2: done it one other time. So we last year, our crew did the Bedlam game in Oklahoma. It was at OU. And so your mic goes live to 90,000 people, and that's kind of that's kind of daunting. But in that case, I wasn't up on a stage. I was, you know, basically Bob Bowlsby and Bob Stoops and I'm around the players and there wasn't that much, you know, like to, to kind of sift through. In the case of this, just in a window and, and, and I'm not saying I did a great job with it, but so just here's what the traffic is like. in the, the game, it comes down to the wire with three minutes left, Arizona, takes the lead. And now what we have to do is we're going to interview a player, but ideally not one of the offensive or defensive MVPs on the field. And then after that, I'm going to go up to the podium, introduce the offensive MVP, the defensive MVP, the woman who's the CEO of the Foster Farms, of Foster Farms, and then the winning coach. And because Arizona taking the lead, I'm thinking, all right, well, I'm not going to interview Khalil Tate on the field. I'm going to maybe interview one of his receivers. So I'm thinking in my head, all right, let me go talk to Tony Ellison. Let me find out more about him, whatever. As I'm trying to get more information from d- guys I know around the program, Anthony Mahungu from Purdue catches, I don't know, a 40-yard touchdown pass in the, on the opposite side of where I'm standing. So I hustle over over to Purdue, and we're thinking, all right, we're going to interview him. And The only problem is now he's injured. And we don't know if he's going to be able to do the interview, and you don't know who the MVPs are of the game, so it kind of factors into (laughs) who we can or can't
1: interview. Well, I can tell you one reason: I was in the press box. They didn't ask for our hand. You those sheets? They didn't actually ask for them back till after the game had ended. (laughs) Well, so (laughs) probably when a
4: lot of people were on the field.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and they had another
2: receiver, Gregory Phillips, who had like you know a dozen catches and so maybe it was going to be him. And then so it's just kind of that's who I voted for, by the way. Okay, well. It was going to be kind of a moving target. So in the end, I end up interviewing Elijah Sindler, the quarterback, on the field, and then I'm going to interview on the podium. Long story not so long, I end up with these guys on the podium. And the one thing, the one piece of advice I have heard from multiple Fox people when you do a post-game celebration is the Cardinal rule, nobody else gets the mic. They can hold the mic, but you're holding it too. They can touch it; they're not walking away. So this, the woman who is the CEO of Foster Farms, she is trying to pull the mic away, and it's like all of a sudden, then somebody else that took a picture of it, it looks like we're having a tug of war for the mic.
1: That's it awesome. It did. That, that I, should be
4: your Twitter background. I
1: noticed that you were
2: holding on for due life. Yeah. So, so sorry, Laura, you were not getting the mic that night. But anyway, it was a it was a cool moment for Purdue to see. You know, Purdue had been so mediocre for so long, and I think they have the right guy in Jeff Brom, and uh, I think they're going to be really good because you know they're going to recruit and upgrade their speed, and I think they're going to be a uh, they're going to be a problem for people in the Big Ten.
1: So there's actually a little controversial moment in that game, and I'm curious both of your opinions. So um, late first half, Purdue gets the ball back. Um, I don't remember where they were on the field. They're in their this own territory. They were at 31. 50 something so. seconds left. Three timeouts. They run this cool, I thought it was a cool trick play, where they lined up in the kneel formation to kneel the clock away, and instead... They run what is known as the the hide-the-little-guy play. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But this being America, and we can't agree on anything, I find out quickly in my Twitter mentions that half the people thought that was a really cool play, and half the people thought that was a Bush League play. And that phrase was used a lot. Bush League play.
4: And wasn't there something about people were worried... That it could result in injuries,
1: right? Because remember, everybody was mad at Greg Schiano when he was the Bucs coach for going after people in the victory formation. So he, now, Rich Rodriguez claims the refs told their defense not to rush the passer on that. And if that's the case, that's a problem onto itself that they need to figure out. But in general, why? Why is there anything? Why well, I would run that play? That, that's an amazing play. I, I wouldn't call and that a play. Didn't they run it last like, year? Like they should yeah, have been ready
4: for it. they ran right? it. <laughs>
1: Jeff
2: Brom, Jeff Brom had already left and taken the Purdue job, but but Nick Holt, his defense coordinator, was the interim head coach at Western Kentucky. They ran that play in the Boca Bowl. Not only that, and I was told by somebody at Purdue that the the Patriots ran a version of it, and they call it Hilltopper. So
4: that's awesome. <laughs> so the fingerprints
2: are all over it. And what is it? What you know? As you said that, Stu, it dawned on me: Will there be some kind of you know, AFCA coaches legislation that say if you're in that formation, it's almost like you're giving up. And so that you can't do that. And they would say, OK, if you if you're in the victory formation, that that means there's not going to be any, you know, anything that's going to happen.
4: Did Rich Rod say anything about it afterward except for saying the what the he didn't blame Purdue.
1: He said the officials made an error. The officials told them, and apparently this is not uncommon that though they will to, for safety's sake, they'll say it's gonna be a new play, don't rush. And that if that's the case and then they go ahead and do the trick play, the play shouldn't count, the refs messed it up. I, I don't I don't know the right answer to that. But I don't know you, the best you could do is like a handshake agreement. I don't think they're gonna make well, a unless they do. Look, play. Rich
2: Rodriguez is is uh, is on the AFCA board. Uh, he could bring it up. up, but as he told us earlier, like the day before, when we were talking about recruiting stuff, he was like, He's like I'd rather be a congressman than a lobbyist because all you do you have to do is throw stuff out if
1: you're, you know, in that position. And maybe that is something you throw out. I think football fans are just like anti fun. <laughs> well,
4: like, why particularly can't we just, if they're like the NFL. Effects, all though,
1: right, while too. we're at it, quick take. Tom Herman mocking Drew Locke the other day. So Yay or nay. So
4: inappropriate. Yeah. I, he looked like a child. I mean, I don't know how you're gonna be able to call in a kid when a kid does something stupid and talk about being mature and representing Texas well and that this is a privilege and have and be taken seriously.
2: I think by well, the way you phrased it, sir, you were kind of saying, by the, using the word mock, you clearly do not approve of it.
4: Well, I don't... Is there ap- another way... <laughs> is there another word that he should have used? I don't, is there think, it, I don't think it's a good
1: look for for a 40-something-year-old coach to be mocking a college player, but I also kind of feel like there I don't know if he was thinking this in the moment but it makes him look cool with his players right his players are like oh my gosh the coach is in on this with us I think a little of what Stu
2: is saying and I'm not maybe I am defending it by what I'm about to say is one of the issues that you that people have had with Texas is there's no edge to the program and Tom Herman definitely can be pushing some buttons and he's got he's He's got some loose cannon in him. I mean, he's definitely got a loose cannon personality. And I think, you know, we saw some of the things he did at Houston to kind of ramp things up, you know, and try to connect with the players. And and I think some of these things he's doing at Texas, I don't know how well, you know, at Texas, I think certain things are going to be perceived differently than you are if you're in Houston. But I
4: think you can do that type of stuff and have that type of edge and relate to your players behind closed doors in a locker room. I yeah. mean, that's the bottom line. It's all over not, not TV, It's all over Twitter.
1: The cameras are on you.
4: Did he apologize for it or comment on it? In you know, games? he wasn't even
1: asked about it in the post game. For why I heard. I
4: kind of wonder if people who are at the, you know some of those times you're at a game and you don't actually see what's going on on yeah. the sideline. Um, yeah,
1: that's actually. Probably the case, right? Sometimes you don't see you don't see the TV replays if you're already down the field. Also, if it's you know the Missouri media are off interviewing exactly their team, and there's I mean, not they like a
4: national person there. Right? They definitely asked Drew
1: Locke about it. What did Drew Locke say? Drew Locke said something to the effect of, you know, hey, I guess I'm I ruffled his feathers. He he wasn't mad about it, but he was like kind of wearing it as a badge of honor, like, well, I got under his skin, you know.
4: That seems like a perfect segue to talk about Baker Mayfield. Yeah. He gets under, under he gets people's under skin, skin all the skin. time. But,
1: but before we do, I'm just curious, because you mentioned,
2: you know, as a coach in his 40s, are there any other coaches you, you imagine you could see doing something like that?
4: Well, I would put nothing past Lane Kiffin. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, that's a point. Would Mike Gundy ever do that? I don't think so, but what about Leach?
4: That's, Leach was the other person I was thinking of, but I think Leach would do it privately. My, I,
2: I don't know if he would do it privately, but I mean, I could. I mean, Leach kind of had his had his fun with Todd Graham. I just don't know. I mean, it's,
1: it's well, look, possible. it could be a lot worse. Today's I saw this on Twitter. Today's the anniversary of Woody Hayes punching a player on the sideline. So a <laughs> player.
4: So
1: you know, compared to that, Tom Herman's an angel. All right, so so I just got to LA today. I haven't actually been to any of the interviews yet but lindsey
4: neither has baker mayfield neither has Baker Mayfield. <laughs>
1: well, you're just all over the segways aren't you, you lindsey has been show. on the scene lindsey update us on baker mayfield health gate 2017 slash 2018
4: well as we were talking about earlier according to dennis dodd who is not at practice <laughs> baker did practice today um so basically he's skipped all of the um, non-practice events he wasn't at Disneyland. He didn't come to today's Friday. Today was Oklahoma offense day for the media. He didn't go to the Beef Bowl Thursday night.
1: Which is a real shame. That's a heck of an event. He lives in Oklahoma. I'm sure he's had more than a share of beef.
4: A few years ago, don't you remember? I'm pretty sure it was Oregon, Ohio State. They were at the Beef Bowl and um, there was one reporter there from the Eugene Register Guard, Adam Jude. Shout out to Adam Jude. He's now at the Seattle Times. And uh, someone in the restaurant started choking and an Oregon player ran and performed the Heimlich and, like, saved that person's it was, life. Was it Marcus? It was not Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Jason Kersey, your co-worker, Stu, said that he, Baker walked over and saw him mistreated and came to say hi because Jason obviously used to cover Oklahoma and that he looked awful, um, like very, very clearly sick. So people are there right now, theoretically, you know charting how much Gatorade he's drinking.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's sick. There's no question about it. Now, today is Friday. The game's not till Monday. If you've ever had a bad cold slash flu, you know, it can last up to a week, but I've got to think he'll be better well, by Monday. Well, he'll play,
4: but, I mean, is he going to be himself? Like, you've had the flu, and do you want to go out and
1: play? When I had the a... flu, I don't want to. I can't. You're i are kind of a wimp. A, are, we really a video are we game? really comparing Stu <laughs> to Baker Mayfield? No offense, Stu. Maybe some of them. They that, can that, also but... shoot him up with IV and stuff during the game. <laughs> You don't have those perks. My my thing would be: Does why does he even need to practice? You don't think Baker Mayfield knows (laughs) how to play football at this point? (laughs) Knows the offense? (laughs) Knows? I'm sure they've been working on Georgia for a month. Like, you know, don't just skip the other stuff. Like, just stay in bed. Yeah. You know, Purdue Purdue had two private practices
2: the whole time for the bowl. So I think some of what you're saying is fair. I just think that. You know, sometimes the practice is for the younger guys during bowl development. Yeah, 100%. So, I think he's going to be fine. I think, you know, I'm not changing my pick. I think they're going to win the national title, and I definitely think they're going to win this game. And so...
4: I wonder if it's all just. I mean, I I do think he's sick, but are they he just trying friendship? to kind of, you know, today? So they asked. You him, think
1: he's gonna come out in a t-shirt that says like <laughs> flu with like a no-smoking <laughs> cross through it, like not like some. I beat him, beat that opponent.
4: Uh, or he'll come out with a shirt that says like 102 degrees, like his temperature, and he'll still win. Um, a couple people asked Georgia defenders today, like do you want him to play? And they were all like, yeah. Oh, man, I would just, es- you know? I
1: would expect so. Yeah.
4: But it's been
2: Who would say boring. No Who would say no to that question? Well,
4: no one, but a, a few of them said like, you know, I hope he gets better because with, without even being prompted. And then that made a reporter go ask everyone. But the bottom line is that without Baker talking, it's been extremely boring. Cause even today, like because he didn't show up, If you asked an Oklahoma player about him, the Oklahoma players have clearly been directed to say, you can ask Coach Riley about that. Cale Gundy said the same thing. (laughs) So it's been pretty blah without his antics.
2: Well, for whatever whatever this is worth, uh, there was a food poisoning issue for Michigan State this week earlier at the Holiday Bowl. And they beat the crap out of Washington <laughs> State.
4: So
1: I think, I think that Some be
4: Appalachian fine. State guys had food poisoning when they beat Michigan years ago. So, so you can overcome. So yeah. you're
1: very confident in Oklahoma. Um, you're talking to me or you're talking to Lindsay? To Bruce. You just uh, say you're no. very confident. I'm I'm I don't know what Lindsay's too. pick I'm is. I'm picking, picking Oklahoma too. All right, well, I'm picking Georgia. Okay. Um, I just think this follows the script of so many BCS slash playoff games I've covered over the years. Of the high-scoring, unstoppable offense against the really dominant defense, the defense usually wins. So
4: defense wins championships. Defense does win and championships.
1: And now, I know um, you know it, Georgia has definitely not faced an offense like this. There's no question about that. And it may be that Baker Mayfield is so much better than the other quarterbacks Wait they a faced. Minute. Didn't Oklahoma
2: have really dominant defense? I mean, didn't Alabama have a really dominant defense last year?
1: you talking about against Clemson? I'm talking yeah, Deshaun Watson ate that defense up. But Deshaun Watson ate up a lot of defense. A lot a good but, defense. But, but, so is Baker. But, yeah, yeah, but so is Baker Mayfield. I, it's, a, it's an interest. it's a fascinating matchup. I mean, it's a team, a spread team against a power run team. Um, they so, haven't really faced a power run game like this, but Georgia hasn't really faced out passing offense like this.
4: To me, today – The Georgia players were asked who is playing Baker in practice, and it's a kid named
2: Stetson Bennett.
4: Okay, Stetson Bennett, and they're like, he's made us look silly quite a bit, and they were saying how he's kind of similar to Baker and can scramble and this and that, and they were laughing. But I was kind of thinking to myself, it's that's not good. Like he shouldn't be making Rokan Smith, the the -hmm. maybe the best defensive player in the country, look silly. In practice. Yeah, that's
1: not a good sign. You By know what, the way, you know the what Music it is? City Bowl, we're watching the Music or so I'm watching the Music City Bowl as we are recording this. First, Clayton Thorson, Northwestern's veteran quarterback. Looks like he suffered a bad knee injury, which stinks. And now Benny Snell, Kentucky's star running back, just got ejected. Quite, quite a lot going on here. Yeah. Um, so so you know what you've done,
2: Lindsay. One of the hot items tomorrow at Media Day is going to be Stetson Bennett.
4: I like it. Yeah. I, I like it.
1: Here's the other thing. To think about, so I'm not one of these people who says, "Oh, Big 12 defenses stink; they all stink." That's not necessarily true. Because you get a DM if you did. I would, <laughs> but I would say that there is no there's no what you would call ball control offense in that conference. Georgia has the ability to shorten this game and make sure Oklahoma doesn't have 12 possession. I think yeah, at, if Georgia Bedlam eats up had, clock. Yeah,
4: it's like no bueno
1: they have 16 possessions in Bell? That's some insanely high number. I mean, Georgia can at least do that and make sure that Baker Mayfield doesn't have the ability to throw eight touchdowns on them. So, so you're picking Georgia to win? I am.
4: What's the line currently? I wondered if Baker not practicing had made a jump around at all.
1: The line is Georgia two. It doesn't seem like it's really jumped around. It's between two, two and a half.
4: So I'm picking Oklahoma number one because I think it's really tough to pick against Baker right now or this season in general but the other thing for me this is why I picked Clemson last year and I picked them in the preseason and then they won it is I think a lot of times it you have to get here to understand what it takes to win and there are a lot of players on Oklahoma's team that played two years ago against Clemson and it was a good game the first half and then they just fell apart in the second half and Baker in particular was not good the second half so I think that more than just, you know, oh, we want redemption, is about we understand now how to win at this level.
2: Lindsey said a lot of stuff that is exactly what I think. Hmm. I mean, even back to the picked Clemson before the year because of Deshaun Watson. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ref- reference Taj Boyd, who at that game, at the uh, Clemson-Oklahoma game or before, it talked about how the program had taken, kept on taking gradual steps... And he was exa- proved to be prophetic, and I think there's something to that.
1: So the second game, the Alabama Clemson game, I gotta be honest, I don't, I have no idea who's <laughs> gonna win that game. I go back and forth on. Does anybody have a strong conviction? Uh, I'm like Lindsay, I'm picking. I'm picking Clemson.
2: I don't feel quite as strong about that one just because I'm. I'm a little more skeptical of their offense than I was before, just because. You no, know, I don't know. I don't think the ACC had a particularly great year, and I don't know. I, I want to see what their quarterback's going to do against this. To me, this is a different level test than he's had at any point this year.
4: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's hard to pick against Saban, but um, I, I'm also picking Clemson. Although, like, if Alabama wins the national championship, I won't be surprised. I think we all, from a media perspective, need to be mentally prepared for Georgia-Alabama next week, which... And for no one to say anything interesting, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's gonna be. Because they're I mean, all in be the Saban tree, <laughs> like watching robots, watching clones. So my initial thought coming out of the announcement selection announcements was, well, Alabama's in a great spot here. Everybody, a lot of people saying they shouldn't be in it. When has that ever been the case? Saban can use that as motivation. They're going to get back healthy. Rat poison. i pick. Yeah, rat poison. Different
4: type of rat I'm picking poison. Pick in Alabama,
1: but you know what? Clemson's the, – the matchup of Alabama's offensive line against Clemson's defensive line I think is kind of a mismatch. This is not a great Alabama offensive line. They haven't run the ball with the kind of uh, power that they have in the past. Jalen Hurts is pretty much the offense right now, or at least it was toward the end of the season. And Clemson's just so good up front. So I'm going Clemson.
4: I think but. there's any chance that Tua would play if it was a game, if things weren't working out well for Bama?
1: I mean – Hurts has been really good this season. Like, what, they have their issues, but he's There's not really two a
4: better? I mean, that's a question that a lot of people have. Can, Can you definitely... see a scenario in which he plays at all? If it's close or they can't get anything going? And their offense has also not been as good because they don't have Lane. You think so? Yeah.
1: What happened to Bo Scarborough? Remember last year the Washington game, he was I, the second coming. I think they have I
2: think they have four good running backs, and I almost think that it's become getting to kind of maybe it's almost like it's too crowded of a backfield to get settled one guy to get settled in.
1: That may be the case, or maybe the his he's a certain style runner. He needs the offensive line to be a certain way, and they're just not that. But like if you look at his stats over the season. just don't use him that much.
4: And especially, we all thought last year was like a coming out party. Like, this is going to be their guy in 2017. Shoot,
1: they used to get on Kiffin last year for not giving him the ball. Right. (laughs) And Kiffin gave it to him a ton compared to what um, Brian Dayball is doing. Uh, That one could go either way. Uh, I don't think, I don't get the sense people are as... Excited for this Clemson Alabama game as they were the last two. Now, granted, those were national. Well, how much games. of that has to do with Deshaun. people? Well, there's some of that, but I think a lot of it is because people look and go, "Well,
2: Alabama barely got into the playoff," and I think there's some of that kind of tugging back at that. You agree, Lindsay?
4: Yeah, I think so. Um, but I, I do think that it's more about Deshaun, and I, I think that there are a lot of people who don't fully understand like if you're if you're not following it super closely, like how is it that Clemson is so good again? You know? So I don't know that they don't have the star power that they did with Deshaun with you know,
1: anyone. It's hard to get it's hard to get hung up on D linemen so much. I mean it definitely surprised me for most of the season that they were back in this position so quickly. Right? But as you get a little distance and I don't know, maybe I'm influenced a little bit by seeing what they did on early signing day this year, but there's really not much difference between Clemson and Alabama at this point. I know Alabama's been doing it for longer. Clemson reloads and recruits at the same level Alabama there does. There was a
4: great story in the New York Times by Mark Tracy about that and about how the difference is the fun, that Clemson has a lot of fun.
1: They definitely have more fun. Whereas
4: Alabama is you know, a prof- basically an NFL organization in terms of how they approach things.
1: Yeah, I had a question in the mailbag this week. You know, everybody talks about the Sabanization of the SEC. Andy Staples has been writing about it for five years. I think he may have coined the term, actually. <laughs> uh, and, and so he said, what, are we seeing the Swinney effect on the ACC? And I said, yeah. I mean, yes, he's having as great a run as Saban has had in any sort of three-year period. But, you know, you can hire Kirby Smart and have him run the exact same program. You can hire Jeremy Pruitt and ask him to run the same exact program. I don't know how you would replicate what Dabo does. He is... He's unique. Kind. He is a unique personality. I don't think if... Um,
4: and he keeps his... The other thing is, like, right? His assistants haven't
1: left. Chad Morris yeah. is left. Chad Morris is left, but Brandon but Chad is still Morris, there. Like, I don't think Chad Morris is going to turn Arkansas into, like, Clemson of the SEC West. Do you? No, I do think there's something, you know, as we're talking about it. Like, Leach
2: is a very unique character. He's got a lot of protégés who are head coaches, including Lincoln Riley. Who is
4: not like my uh, that's what I was going to say, though, <laughs> that
2: you can you can learn the system. But I think it's the the demeanor and the, the persona that kind of like none of us have spent that much time around Clemson, you know, like the day to day, certainly. And you all kind of we all kind of know the flavor of Clemson because of our experiences around Dabo Sweeney a little bit. And I think that's the difference that's kind of – that's why I would agree it's unique. I mean, I, I think Chad Morris is a really smart guy, but their personalities are not
1: the same. Like if somebody hired Brent Venables next year, who, who's somebody my further coach next year? I mean, uh, look, he could he could possibly be the K-State head okay, coach. Okay, let's say Kansas State Snyder hires Brent over. Venables. Is he going to install some putt-putt courses and some water slides and be like, <laughs> this is how we did it at Clemson? <laughs> you know, No, it's not it just – how fun, recruit great players. I mean, at the end well, of the day, they start by done, recruiting yeah, great I, players. Everybody no recruits them.
2: <laughs> yeah, everybody recruits them. I think the whole family. This is what we're about. Kids want to sign up for that. Um,
4: well, I think a couple of things. Number one, the New York Times story talked about this: that Clemson doesn't always sign twenty-five kids. So, percentage-wise, more of their kids pan out. Like they only sign fifteen in the early period. I think mm-hmm. it was and. They've said that they're basically done.
2: But it's not like they're going to have 63 guys, guys on scholarship.
4: No, I know. But just like that idea and they're, they're really – and they believe recruit at home, recruit at home. And they, they had this great picture of a map where it shows where every kid is from. But the other piece of it, and I think it would be interesting to ask someone like Lincoln Riley this. I don't I don't know that you could get a really honest answer out of him and especially studying like this. But I think it's really hard to be the leader that's fun – That also strikes fear into people, like that's yeah. It's a hard
2: balance to do. One hundred percent.
4: And if you're a young head coach, especially, you're like, "Oh, how do I do this?" And a lot of times, it's just easier to like take a hard line so that people know I'm the boss. I'm the boss. Like the big, you know, because I live in Portland and follow the Ducks really closely. Like part of Mark Helfrich's downfall is he was always the nice guy, the not fun, and but it was
2: like
1: kind of Larry Coker, or people see, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, Clemson hasn't had, you know. Someone you might easily mistake his, aw shucks, we're going to have a whole bunch of fun here, for being lax. But you don't see Clemson players getting in trouble like you right. see at other programs. And they're
4: disciplined on the field. You know, I
1: think Kevin Sumlin was a, a quote-unquote player's coach and things got out of control there, um, starting with Manzel. So, yeah, it's a fine line credit to him. You know, it's interesting, Georgia and Clemson were like the stars of the show on that December signing date. I mean those those they had the best uh, can we did we call it a signing day or is it a signing I period? I wondered about signing that. Period. I think we call it signing. They had period. the best December signing period. That doesn't sound as dramatic. You had the best signing period.
4: It's going to be I'm really fascinated to see what signing day is like in February.
1: Anticlimactic. Yeah. yeah. So they had the, and so they had, what I'm trying to say is they had, they they had the best recruiting day not Alabama for once. And now if they both win, they could play in the national championship game, and it's like, wow, this is this feels a little bit different than uh, you know if it had been Alabama, Ohio State.
4: 100. percent And the thing that I think everyone is curious about with this matchup with Oklahoma, Georgia is, is this the beginning? If you know Georgia can win of a new SEC dynasty, I mean, to go in just your second year is pretty impressive. They're loaded sh- with talent. Yeah. I mean, they have a freshman quarterback.
1: <laughs> it actually feels. I don't want to get too carried away, but it actually feels a lot like. It's the beginning of Saban's time when, like, they lost to Louisiana Monroe. The first. They were not good his first year, just like Georgia wasn't good last year. And then year two, we're here. We've arrived, you know. Uh, they didn't go to the national championship, but they were undefeated going to the SEC championship. So the, he was recruiting already. So would this make, in, in
2: your scenario, Stu, would this make Saban the urban mire of
1: this kind of dynamic? Well, where he's going to quit? No, no. He's going to – Where fans are going to accuse him of faking a heart attack to get where out of the shadow out? of somebody. No, but where – Where somebody gets He's passed. rising up and he's passing. I mean, they didn't play in the SEC title game, so it's hard to do that just yet. I think he'd have to actually beat them. But, I think uh, we need to pump the brakes yeah. on this. I think – Look, they could lose 42-7 to seven to Oklahoma, and nobody will be calling them a dynasty. When Washington broke through and, and made the playoff last year after – you know, not having done anything like that in a long time, nobody said, like, this is the start of the next great Pac-12 dynasty. You know, well, that was they weird. had to prove it first.
4: Right. I mean, I think what was hard about that, though, is it happened a year earlier than everyone was anticipating, and then as a result of that, a bunch of guys, guys went left. to the NFL. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: And they also had a bunch of injuries Georgia on and offense. Yeah. And... Before we go, Lindsay, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask. You're, you're our, um, you know, you're our resident Oregon expert. Oh, yeah. Well, at least tied with the All American Chantelle Jennings, but she's not here right now. She's in New Orleans. I would say Stu gets paid by the plug for the All American, but he actually does get paid by the plug. So I do not get paid by the plug, but it is my livelihood. And as you guys know, you can always go to theathletic.com/slash/theaudible and get a nice discount on a subscription to the All American. we have covering every bowl we've got five people combined out at the bowl games and then you can also read USA Day and SI.com as well nobody's (laughs) stopping you
4: blah 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 Uh, anyway bringing endorsement
1: um, Oregon. Oregon both schools with coaching changes uh give us a little bit of a sense of how people are feeling about the hires those schools made so
4: I was kind of fascinated by both these um with Oregon State I think it was the easy hire in a lot of ways to bring back the alum, to bring back Jonathan Smith. Did you go to school Um, with Jonathan Smith? I did not. He's seven years older than me, I think it is. Um, The alums were very, very happy. The former players, that's who they wanted. But I just, I'm a little on the fence. I think hiring a guy who's never been a head coach at a Power Five is a big risk. Um, I've had a lot of discussions about this with people. but people are excited and that program needs some positive momentum. I think that Smith bringing Riley back actually makes a lot of sense because Mike Riley, first of all, has, I mean, his he started coaching football on the defensive side of the ball, which a lot of people don't realize. And he was an NFL defensive coach. Um, and, and He was a cornerback's assistant, I think is what it was. Um but they're a long way from being good. At his uh, press conference, Smith said, you know, I've watched the film and they're not that far away. And I'm sitting there going, I've watched the film too.
1: <laughs> it is a really, uh, can you think of any situation like this? And I don't know even if people listening even realize this, is, this has happened. Jonathan Smith hired Mike Riley as one of his assistants. Mike as Riley,
4: assistant head coach, which is different than associate head coach. Mike
1: Riley was the head coach at Oregon State spanning two tenures for what? Do you know how many years? I think it was 13
4: total, was yeah, it? It seems
1: like it was even longer so, than that. So it might have been like, 15. I mean, he's basically the the most successful head coach he ever. He is the had. winningest yeah. head coach in And now in he's history. coming back from a, you know, pretty terrible tenure at Nebraska as the assistant to his former quarterback. I mean, knowing Mike Riley, he'll be totally fine with that, yeah. <laughs> but it is definitely unusual. Oh
4: no, I saw him, and you know what's crazy is that I mean, the people in Oregon know this story, but Jonathan Smith wound up at Oregon State because Mike Riley goes down to Los Angeles to recruit an offensive lineman, and the assistant who was in charge of it said, well, we like the quarterback a lot. Why don't you meet him? And so Jonathan Smith, who's 5'10 on a good day, right. walks in. He's like, 5'10, 165 pounds, and... S- starts talking to Riley and tells him you know I want to be a college coach someday and Mike said he empathized with him because he thought that's me because Mike went and played for Bear Bryant but was under no illusions that he was ever going to get off the bench but he went because he wanted to be a coach someday so he invites Smith to walk on he had played well in practice they put him in this game um, against Washington in 97 I think it was uh maybe 96 I don't I don't know and it was, a, it was scripted that he was going to go in in the second quarter. And then he throws for 469 yards and he becomes the starter and blah, blah, blah. But, like, Mike offered him a spot because he wanted to be a coach someday. But I don't think they ever imagined they'd be coaching together. So, um, but like I said, they're, they're going to be bad for a long time. I feel bad for the kids. This is, there are kids on that roster that this is their fourth head coach. Because Mike Riley, Gary Anderson, interim Corey Hall... Now, Jonathan Smith. So there are kids on the roster that played for Mike Riley as head coach.
2: It's like USC without the winning.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And then for Oregon, you know, the weirdest thing about that whole situation to me is it became very clear when Taggart left that they did not have a plan. And what's weird about that is that the second Florida came open, they should have had a plan because what if Florida had come after Taggart?
2: I don't think he's as likely to have left
4: for UF it, as he would have It doesn't have matter. Right. It doesn't I matter. Agree. Like, I don't think so either, but you have to have a list of names in a drawer ready to go. And but, how much, would,
2: but how much different would that have been? I'm not saying whether they hire Cristobal or not, but I'm just saying, what would the candidates have been short of them saying, okay... What if, about Scott
4: Frost. Would they have talked to him? Would they have, ha- you know, reached out and had some preliminary Was conversations? Was he already down the
2: road with Nebraska, though? Uh,
4: maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I mean, the timeline of when everyone It didn't help that
1: Taggart dragged it along. Yeah. Yeah.
4: But I just thought, so, Crystal Ball, they wanted to keep this class together. And I think you were the one that told me, Bruce, that Crystal Ball might be the best recruiter in the yeah, country.
2: Yeah, he's, he, I mean, if you look at what he did at, at Miami, look at what he did at Alabama. I mean, He he is a great recruiter.
4: But what happens I I, I just I just don't think hiring people who have no ties in the Northwest But they did that
2: with with Willie too.
4: Right, and Willie left. So if Miami opens in three years, you know, is he gonna go?
1: John Wilner from the Mercury News has that he's covered Pac 12 for a long time and he firmly believes it's a risk to hire people from outside. The Your part region. of the country who have somebody who have ties to somewhere else because they'll go 100%. Back. I um, so
4: agree with,
1: but I, but I, I don't know. I mean, we kind of make fun of the SEC sometimes because they never think outside of their bubble, right? That's how Jeremy Pruitt ends up the coach at Tennessee, and everybody right. thinks that was <laughs> just the greatest thing ever. Um, so I don't know. I, I, we both think Chris Paul's a good coach, I think he can do a good job there. They did get caught up That Was one of the first examples of a school that I think panicked because. Of early signing, day. I mean, first yes. of all, they got picked to play in a bowl game that was yeah. too, really right, yeah. yeah,
4: not on an ideal day for them. Like, they well, had a huge recruiting weekend. That I had mean, to that
2: clearly played a role in how they played in that bowl. Game. You also have assistant coaches who are a couple of them are already planning on leaving, yep. some are up in the area. It's just it was a chaotic situation. I
4: was surprised that they got Jim Levitt to stay. they're paying him
2: 1.7 million dollars.
4: So. I know, but the Come on, you guys. We all know that coaches have giant egos, including assistants, and the fact that he wasn't them. There. You know, both of them go after a job, and one of them gets it. I would think that he would have wanted to leave. So I think that could be a good thing. But I also, I, I was, I think a huge part of the reason why the Oregon defense is so much better is because they're finally healthy, which they weren't all of last season, which a lot of people seem to have forgotten. But it's going to be fascinating. The thing that'll be really interesting to me is. When Chip came into, when Chip got hired at UCLA, I said this to Aaron Fentress, who covers the Ducks for uh, NBC Northwest. Like, isn't whoever's at Oregon just gonna get asked nonstop about, like, compared nonstop to Chip, you know, being down there? And isn't that gonna get wearing really quickly? I, w- I would think.
2: Yeah, but I, I mean, that's something, you know, look, if you're, a, if you're in the SEC and you're an Saban guy, you get that. So, I mean, you can deal with it. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's not going to matter how much you win, or it's gonna, all. It's going to matter is whether you're winning or not. Well, I think the, I think that's a that's a us question. Like that's a you know we yeah. see it from our sides. So we'll,
4: the bottom line about the Ducks hire, I think, is that Oregon's window to win a national championship closed um, when Mariota left. Oh, in I my guess. opinion, like what they did under Chip was so different, and now everyone runs tempo, everyone has cool uniforms, everyone has fun toys. So I, it's going to take something really special to replicate that
2: well i also think the the conference especially the division is a lot so hard chris peterson (laughs) is now at a at a school with with better resources than you are mike leach is in the same division and even though he's in a, a remote outpost and he's nutty they're a tough out stanford you know I know they just lost a bowl game but they're going to be really good and it's hard like
4: It's really hard to wit- beat Sanford in a recruiting. Battle.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Um and so and now you got Chip in LA with way more access to players than he's ever had in his life. You know USC is still going to recruit because it's USC.
4: Oh you so. guys have, have you haven't walked down Figueroa in downtown LA yet but there's a huge
1: I saw the picture.
4: Picture. It's not a billboard because it's you know on a giant glass building but uh welcoming
1: chip to la yeah which yeah.
4: which hashtag blue chip which i kind of liked i didn't notice that until By the,
2: way, the other day you know you can go down the other end of Figueroa and see where usc plays so it's not that far away <laughs>
1: so i don't know that th- is that their hashtag blue chip well that's what was on this particular well, picture i don't know how i feel about that do you remember the movie blue chips the movie Blue Chips is about a college basketball program that cheats right. its ass off, and their colors maybe, were UCLA's colors. Maybe it's colors.
4: more fitting than we realize.
1: <laughs> so I don't know about that. Anyway, Lindsay, thanks for wasting an hour of your day with us, and most and, and also thank you for lending us. As this Stu was going to say, food. and most importantly, you're going to basically diminish her her
2: worth as a guest oh, and, and more as a technical. She's a great.
1: You, we've had you on the podcast what like ten times.
4: Ten. I think this is my second appearance. Second or third
1: appearance. <laughs> I mean, you're in the, pod, in the audible Hall of Fame of guests along with um, Joe, Joe Tessator, yeah. John Walters. <laughs> and, you Dave
4: Wonstead's been, been on a few times. Dave Wonstead's been on a few times. I mean, times. I listen all the time. Petros
1: is definitely in that Hall of Fame. So uh, now the people who I didn't say are never going to come on again. <laughs> but no, you're, we, we always love having Lindsay on. Um, follow her at Lindsay,
4: Lindsay <laughs> underscore snow.
1: Yeah. How do you spell Lindsay.
4: L-I-N-D-S-A-Y and then S-C-H-N-E-L-L. And read my stuff in USA Today. Talked to Jake Fromm's dad yesterday. He told me some hilarious stuff about Jake learning to talk trash when he was 10 years old playing ping pong against his dad. And it served him well up to this point because he won the respect of his older Georgia teammates when he talked trash to them during 7-on-7 drills in the summer. <laughs>
1: I think that's about all we have for now. I'm about to do a big sneeze. So it's time for me to sign off roll those credits. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoy college football podcasts, also subscribe to the All-American Podcast with Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson, and Chantel Jennings. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Feldman CFB. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel. And subscribe to The All American if you haven't done so already at theathletic.com slash all American.